It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com. Ladies and gentlemen, all the way from the other side of the planet, from the grass fields of the USA, it's Dr. Peter Bellastad. Peter, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to be here, Laban. Thank you. Sodfather is pleased to be here. Well, I would normally wear something a bit more snazzy clothing-wise, but I thought I would wear our ruminant friend's apparatus in the form of a leather jacket. Yes, it's a fermented plant product. (laughs) It's uh, not only does it keep us fed, but it also keeps us clothed. What else do cows do for us, Peter? Well, there are a long, there's a long list of byproducts that come from cattle uh, through the bone and blood and uh, leather. And um, when they're alive, we get a significant amount of fertilizer from them. Uh, something like over half the world's fertilizer ends up coming from livestock. A large portion of that comes from ruminants. Some parts of the world where they don't have electricity and can't take advantage of Zoom yet, um, they still they still cook on it on um, you know dry dung, which is something that has to be changed. It's like a billion people. Um, well, actually, it's three billion. A billion people don't have regular access to electricity yet. So, um, but in terms of ecosystem services, ruminant animals keep grasslands healthy, um, which means that watersheds are maintained in, in good health and function. Um, they upcycle the food supply for us. So the vast majority of the feed that goes into supporting the ruminant herd worldwide is not edible by humans. So, and even that bit that is, they increase, for example, if you look at just the human edible protein that goes into feeding them, we get far more edible protein back from them and it's of higher quality. So it's a vast upcycling of resources. So those are just a few of the things um, that I we get ribeyes. I mean, come on, that's that would be enough. But no, wait, there's more. <laughs> and that's that's very interesting, Peter. But some people watching this might say, "But Peter, how do you know all this?" Ah, uh, well. Um, one, I am the sod father of the Ruminati, and so. Um, <laughs> I have to, you know, maintain that position. Um, 
I'm trained as a forage agronomist and a ruminant nutritionist. That's my academic training. I've served at local university for several years. And for the last decade or so, a little less, I've um, worked at a grass seed, forage seed company in two different roles, but basically getting to um, get back into agriculture. Do you guys rely on seed funding? Seed funding. Uh, the Ruminati is currently not funded by anyone. It's an entirely gratis operation. Um, I obviously am getting funded by the seed company. That's my employer. Um, and it's fair for people to know that. Um, but um, I've, I've been given the opportunity to uh, build bridges between my agricultural tribe and then some of my, um, I guess I call it therapeutic carbohydrate reduction tribe, and trying to get both tribes to learn from each other, uh, because I think there's really important information that both need to learn from each other. And just on that, Peter, what is the greatest misconception about nutrition that you want to share with everyone today? Hmm, the biggest one. Um, well, the biggest one is this idea that we know that if you eat this way today in 40 years, you won't get whatever disease, right? It's just a complete myth. This nutritional epidemiology of chronic disease is the weakest of sciences. And yet it's the basis of what most people think they know about what constitutes a healthy diet. And then you could drill into details from that. Um, but the idea that red meat um, or full-fat dairy products are in any way a health hazard at any level of intake um, is entirely based on this idea of nutritional epidemiology of chronic disease. Um, there are some other things that we could talk about, and maybe they'll come up. Um, but people have been unfairly, I think, um, led to believe that red meat consumption will increase your risk of cancer, will increase your risk of heart disease, diabetes, any of another of the chronic diseases. And there frankly is no high quality evidence to support that, as was published last year in a series of papers that were published in the Annals of Internal Medicine. And I think this is the greatest challenge that we're facing at the moment, Peter, because the, the message that I have for anyone is I just want the truth, right? I just want to know the truth, then I can make an informed decision. I knew when I was a cigarette smoker, that smoking towards the end was bad for me and probably would lead to cancer or, you know, whatever, any number of things. I know that consuming sugar is no good for me. I know that consuming alcohol is no good for me. But when it comes to eating red meat, there's so much confusion. Why is that? 
Well, there's a number of reasons, I think. One is there's been official policy that we need to limit it, certainly in the United States. And and frankly, on behalf of the nation, I apologize for what's been inflicted upon Australia and other parts of the world. Um, I'll, I'll do penance later and eat some ribeye uh, in the morning. Um, but so that's part of it. We've been told that. Um, and... I think it's also fair um, that there have been interests, including some organized religion, that promoted the idea that eating meat or animal products is bad for your health. That's part of their belief system. Um, at the same time, there's been a, a, an environmentalist community that argued against consuming animal source foods in general or beef in particular um, and they tried to justify that both on um, uh, human health but environmental concerns as well and um, also there's been at times at well let's face it animal source foods tend to be more expensive than the highly processed carbohydrate foods or the plant-sourced foods that, you know, you get in the center of the soup. Did they arrange things that way in Australia, too, that the, the, the food that you really want to eat is on the outside and the really processed and sugar stuff is in the middle aisles? That's pretty similar, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, so um, and, and part of the concern that I think we need to have is we know that the chronic illnesses, the metabolic illnesses, um, such as the, the, well, the diabetes, metabolic syndrome, obesity, um, heart disease, fatty liver, uh, Alzheimer's, uh, cancers, um, skin conditions, all of these that seem uh, mental health issues, all of these seem to have relationship and some of them, it's going beyond associational. Some of them, it's very, very clear that there's a causal link here. Um, but we know that those conditions are impacting more heavily the lower socioeconomic levels of our societies. And, and you can see these now globally. Now, one narrative says, well, that's because they're eating more meat. Right. That the, 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 there's one narrative that says these are diseases of affluence. Right. And, and, and so, okay, we just glitched there. So I'll start over. Um, the one, one, yeah, it says, thank you. Your internet connection is unstable. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, one narrative one narrative says that these diseases are the result of affluence and as as if people becoming more prosperous globally somehow becomes a health threat. It's crazy, um, but it's part of their belief system. The other side says, uh, another view would say, maybe it's because they can't afford the foods that they ought to be eating, and we need to figure out how to make that happen. 
Um, I, I, so I've been also getting interested in what's going on globally. And, and one of the things I just came across the other day, and it's just 45% of people in the world today consume less electrical power per year than the average North American refrigerator. And so that, wow. you know, you think, you think about how important a refrigerator is and 45% of the world's population has yet to get to the point. I, I think that when I was reading it, they, they further expanded it and said what that means is they're at a level of electrical power consumption equivalent to Chicago in 1925. And so none of that development and progress has been able to take place. And so we also need to face the fact that a quarter of children five years and under globally are stunted. Which isn't just stature, which isn't just stature, it's, it's brain development. And that lasts their lifetime. And so some authors have estimated that that drag on GDP in Africa alone is 11%. And so when we start talking about sustainable development, we have to start, and we haven't yet really onboarded all this information and you look at you know every seven seconds someone in the world dies of diabetes and and that's looking just air quotes at diabetes that's not with the more informed perspective that diabetes is a manifestation of metabolic illness which could be heart disease could be you know and 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 you start looking at those numbers Non-infectious diseases are the biggest killer in the world today. Now, partly that's because we've made tremendous progress at, at against the infectious diseases, but it's also pointing to the fact that this is um, so. So there's there's a number of these things that all swirl together for me, and I I, I want people to understand that we. We cannot have sustainable food systems without ruminant animal agriculture, period, anywhere in the world. And it's going to look different in Australia, in North America, or in Zimbabwe, but it's still true. So that's part of my... Uh, part of the, the mission of the Ruminati is to get people to understand more about both of those issues, the production and the consumption, the, the reality of, of ruminant animal agriculture and its role uh, in humanity's past, present, and future, as well as how the products of ruminant animal agriculture will be essential in meeting these challenges that we have in today's world as well as the world of 2050 and beyond. It's a big burden of responsibility you've taken on your shoulders there, Peter, and we're grateful for it. One of the questions, one of the statements that people make to me a lot, given they know what I, how I eat, now I choose to sort of talk about the stuff publicly, Laban, we could never feed 
the world if everyone ate as much meat as you? Is that true? Well, somebody, there's, there's one universally true statement. It's true everywhere it's said, every time it's said. It won't work here. If, if the person saying that has anything to do with it, they're right. <laughs> so I can show that, no, in fact, we can get there. But we have to make the investments. We have to see the need just like people saw the need in the 60s and 70s to improve agronomic productivity of cereal grains to avoid the famine that many people predicted and said, I I think I've got these dates right. So in, I think it was 68 was when Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb, was published. Um, and he, in that, he's one of the um, uh, apocalyptics, these, these prophets of doom that we still have to, well, he's still alive and he's still saying things. He's wrong every time. It doesn't matter. <laughs> but. Um, it's, it's remarkable. He's, he's, he's got a more secure gig than the weatherman. Um, <laughs> but, but he said in his book that India had lost the battle to feed itself. And some very dark things came out of all that forced sterilizations without women's knowledge or consent. I mean, just, it, just really, really bad things. But he said this. The irony is that the same year the nation of India published a stamp commemorating the wheat revolution that was currently underway, and four years later, I think it was, India was self-sufficient in grain production. Okay? So that's how off the, the very confident assertions have been, and I would humbly suggest still are, and then we could have the conversation about what, whether we should be on cereal-based diets, right? That's a whole nother conversation. But if you're starving, your issue is caloric insufficiency. If you're starving, you have one problem. And you do whatever it takes to alleviate that. And we still have something like, what is it? 800 million people in the world today, I think that's the number, are calorically undernourished. Now, most of that's got to do with politics and, 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 and not having access to food for a number of reasons, including conflicts and all kinds of problems that need to be, we need to work on those, absolutely. But I think we've got something like 2.2 billion people that are overweight or obese. So we've got 3 billion people in the world that are malnourished one way or the other. Unfortunately, too many people think of malnourishment only as too few calories. And, and I, part of what I'd like people to 
begin to consider is malnourishment is, I mentioned it before, a species inappropriate diet, whatever that is for people. And human beings are varied and there's lots of ways that people could eat and be healthy. And so maybe if we could focus on achieving adequate essential nutrition, number one, number two, um, attaining or maintaining metabolic health. Now, there's, there's, there needs to be long conversations under both of those headings, but if, if we need to accept those as priorities, and then whatever people choose to do for whatever valid reason, great, wonderful. Um, but then I start learning about what that essential nutrition looks like and, and how confused we are about a number of those things. And so then that might get us into some longer, more interesting conversations. But um, we, we need to get people to understand that health is more than weight, you know, health, metabolic health is, is far more than what we've been told is the healthy diet, right? Um, but I understand where the narrative comes from that says we can't feed the whole world, right? But who's to say it has to be? Uh, for some people, I, I've known that they reversed very significant chronic illnesses by going on a meat-only diet. And, and, and as a result, off any medication that they had been on and, right, and, and all of those things, that's not everybody. But on the other hand, where is the information that says we could, that humans could thrive globally on a vegetarian diet, and by vegetarian, I mean vegan, right? I, I think we ought to get clear, you're, you're vegan, you're carnivore, you're omnivore, would be somewhere in the middle, right? Yeah. And, and then you slide that scale based on whatever personal, right? But I, I humbly suggest that vegan is not sustainable on a personal or global basis. And carnivore is a viable answer for some and for many slash most, it's going to be some form of an omnivorous diet where they're going to have animal source food in their diet. And they're also going to have some plant source food. And then we need to figure out, well, what sorts of plant source foods really does nobody need or if if people are interested in improving their diet, then yeah, probably the refined sugar can go away and probably the refined starch can go away and probably the vegetable oils can go away and then you can see how you do on that. Um, so I guess that's, that's kind of where I start on that answer. You can do um, calculations. For example, I think Brazil is only at 50%. Uh, it, its production system is only 50% as efficient as it could be. Um, you know, so there's lots of ways to look at that. You 
if they could adopt appropriate technology and improve forage and management and et cetera, et cetera, you know, breeding genetics for the cattle, you could get the same amount of beef with half the number of animals. And what we've seen in North America is I think the numbers are something like we have something around 9% of the world's beef cattle and we produce about 20% of the world's beef. Wow. So, so if you start thinking about appropriately leveraging technology globally, then you can increase the efficiency and productivity, and that can lower the impact because you can reduce the numbers, right? Some of these, um, I, I got to visit Brazil, and you could see here's the mama cow, and she's got this year's calf on her. And then you got last year's calf there, and then you've got the calf before that still hanging around. And so it's taking them like three years to get an animal to market. Well, that's that's a big impact, um, and and so that increases emissions per pound of beef. That increases land use. All of those things. Um, so, so those are just some aspects. Cause you've been very vocal about the, you know, you're not really fussed about what diet people want to eat, but again, it goes back to that statement I made about, you know, just wanting the truth. Cause the thing that really frustrates me, Peter, is the people that do a bit of Netflix research and they believe what they read in the news. And then all of a sudden they think they're Greta Thunberg. And they think by cutting out all their animal protein or whatever that they're saving the planet. When in fact, in reality, particularly if they are vegan, they're doing damage to the environment. What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think it's completely reasonable and appropriate to be concerned about the environment. I think it's completely honorable to uh, wish to have a positive impact in the world in which we live. I think it's completely um, appropriate for us to be concerned about our health. I think it's completely appropriate to be concerned about animal welfare. The problem is if you couple those legitimate concerns with bad information, you can make some very bad decisions. And so hopefully I can act in a way that fosters a dialogue to get us to where, well, why, why do you think that's so? Um, you know, for me, a big part of my journey, one, it was the academic training. I mean, I know some things that, and, and my experience in, in employment. So I know some things from that that many, many people don't know. I mean, there are more, there are more people in the United States today that, I heard this once at a conference. The, more, the average American today is more likely to have direct personal experience with the criminal justice system than with production agriculture. So that was one of those that, first of all, I want to write it down because I want to remember it. And then <laughs> yeah, second, it. second, before I ever say it, I'm going to verify it, right? <laughs> <laughs> and so the best I could do is look at Department of Justice numbers and um, – USDA Census of Agriculture numbers. And sure enough, when I looked, and I think this was 2012 data, there were more people 
incarcerated local, state, federal, slightly above 2 million in the United States than there were listed as primary operators of farms. Slightly, just around 2 million for that one. And that's not parole, that's not probation, that's not served your sentence and you're now, you know, that's currently locked up. And I, I, I shared that a couple of times until somebody says, but Pete, what's it take to be considered a farm in the United States? Oh, all you have to do is sell $1,000 worth of goods off of your farm. Well, okay, that's a good hobby and I'm all for you. You drill into that number and it turns out that something like 25% only 20, what was it? Sorry, sorry. 75% of that 2 million make less than a quarter of their household income from the farm. So now we've scaled that way, way, way down, right? To, to the number of people that are actually supporting their families farming. Okay, so it's not unreasonable that the vast majority of people have no idea of what it's like to do that. We're several generations removed now from where the majority of the U.S. population was agricultural. So, okay, I get that. Then on top of it, for me, you know, in, in 2007, I was a 51-year-old, balding, obese, pre-diabetic. No offense to you, sir. Um, <laughs> None taken. And, and, and basically, you know, got tired of seeing everything go in the wrong direction and knew where pre-diabetes was going to lead me to and didn't want to go there. By that time, my wife, Nancy, had been five years on her own low-carb journey, and so she was the person that directed me to a lot of books and websites and what have you. you think about the resources that were available in 2007 versus today. Um, basically, that condition was reversed by following a diet that's about 180 degrees different than what we had been told. And then I read books like Good Calories, Bad Calories by Gary Taubes, which came out shortly, right around that time. And I, my first reaction was to get mad when I realized what had been done and the difference between the disciplines I've been trained in and these people that affected policy and our food systems and public health messaging and all of that nonsense. And, and, and it came as a result of, of unfairly pointing the finger at these people that I know in the industry saying, you're the reason that we have, you know, all these, you know, heart disease and whatever, whatever, whatever. And so after a while, I started showing up at these low carb, metabolism conferences. I started doing that in 2010, and I've been stalking some of these people ever since, um, just trying to, one, make sure that they don't um, risk their own credibility with my agricultural tribe by saying some of the things that are 
you know, common misperceptions and misunderstandings because I think their message about human health and nutrition is so important that I want them to at least be aware of some of these landmines and, you know, don't go there. You don't have to go there. What, what uh, at the same time, misconception. Sorry, Peter. Oh yeah, fine. Um, I've I've read some things like you know, well, the cattle in the feedlot would die if we didn't kill them. They would die shortly afterwards, right? Or that when cattle, um, the reason we feed um, um, antibiotics in finishing systems is that um, you know they'd explode from eating grain, um, or that. Um, and, and that, that when you talk about beef animals in the United States, they think that this is an animal that spends its entire life in a cage, you know, eating nothing but corn, right? Even in the United States, even a grain finished steer, only 10% of the feed that it consumes throughout its entire life is human edible. So that's very different than what people think. Uh, a lot of people think that if you, and I've heard this, I, I heard this from a producer. I think a lot of them is a grazier. Uh, he's a great dairyman, um, but he is um, in the organic dairy industry. And he told me at the end of one presentation, if you're not going to have people get onto 100% organic food diet, you might as well leave them on the sad American diet, right? So, so there's these belief systems and narratives about organic, natural, grass-fed, whatever, that are luxuries for some to entertain. In no way are they a requirement to realize the health benefits of eating a species-appropriate diet that's affordable and accessible and appropriate to the people that you're trying to help. So the, the message there seems to be, Peter, that if, if given the some of the restrictions around the world with, with the cost, that you are better off eating the other meat that's available rather than excluding the organic stuff just because you can't get it, you're better off eating the next best stuff like the supermarket steaks or mints or whatever. And the, the difference from a nutritional point of view, what about that as a, as a thought? Yeah, I, I, I am not, I am unconvinced of the difference of the biological significance of any differences that exist between foods from different management systems. Um, in some cases, they're vanishingly small. In other cases, you have to look at it against the backdrop of the rest of the diet. So, you know, beef or other ruminant flesh, regardless of how it's finished, is not going to be a rich source of omega-6 or omega-3, right? That, that and, and part of this is also conflated because I, when I first started running into Gary Taubes at conferences, I'd ask him about this, and this is before Nina Teicholz's book came out, and he goes, I have this friend, Nina Teicholz, and I never got the spelling right, and so I never was able to make contact with her before her book came out. But he's saying, yeah, she's looking into all this. That's who you need to look, you know. So remember, we've had this series of paradoxes 
right? We, we, you know, we've, we've got the theory that it's fat in the diet. Well, no, it doesn't appear to be total fat. It must just be the saturated fat in the diet that causes the problem. Well, now we've got these people in, you know, the, the, in parts of Europe, um, Southern Europe that eat a lot of saturated fat and they don't have heart disease. What could it possibly be? Well, so they come up with a Mediterranean paradox, right? So it must be the olive oil, right? Or whatever. And, and it's like, well, so we have the Mediterranean diet. It's like, which part of the Mediterranean are you talking about? Because they have a different diet in Italy or on the coast of Spain or North Africa or in East Mediterranean, which, which, which Mediterranean diet, well, uh, uh, that gets in the way of effective marketing. Just don't confuse us. It's the Mediterranean diet. Oh, and would, it, that, would that be the diet that you observed when you observed the populations during Lent? And you were making assessments of what they're eating and calling that the diet? Would, would, would Lent in an orthodox observant population make a difference? On, maybe, maybe. Okay, I'm sorry. I get distracted. So in any case, we've, we've got the Mediterranean paradox with the olive oil. Well, but then we've got the French and they smoke a lot and they have less heart disease than we do. Oh, it must be the antioxidants in the red wine, the French paradox. And then, and then, then, then we have the Swiss and they're type AAA people, but they still have less you know, heart disease than we do. They smoke, they eat a lot of saturated fat. It, it must be the antioxidants in that good Swiss chocolate, right? So the Swiss paradox. Then we ultimately have the Greenland paradox. The, the natives have low rates of heart disease despite eating diets high in fat. It must be the oily fish that they're eating. Well, there's a couple things to notice. Each time this happens, there's an industry that benefits. There's the olive oil industry. There's the wine industry. There's the chocolate industry. There's now a multi-billion dollar fish oil supplement industry. Oh, but it might be ironic to note that the majority of the fat in those people's diet was not coming from fish. It was coming from mammals, either marine or terrestrial. Oh, that's awkward. Oh, okay. <laughs> So we've got that as kind of background, then being brought into this whole question of, well, we know we shouldn't eat red meat because it's bad for us, but we really like to eat red meat. So could you tell me of some red meat that I could eat and not feel guilty about it? So, so now we get all of this. And again, I'm just talking now about from a nutritional point of view. Do you, you have to acknowledge that we've had a string of physicians and clinicians improving people's lives, and they didn't have these items available to them. And then you talk to people that work in real-world populations, and you have people saying, you know, i got to just do what works, and so I've got a guy who he goes to the 
the all-you-can-eat pizza buffet, and he scrapes the toppings off the pizza, and he eats the pizza, the toppings and not the crust, and he gets better. So I'm not I, – I, I see all this going on, and I understand where it's coming from, I, I think. But the reality is, no, you don't need that. And I, I think um, Ted Naiman is a physician up, he's about, he's close to five hours north of where I live. And his story is just, at Ted. <laughs> yeah, um, he um, shares a story that I, I think sums this up, that he had somebody come to him who lives in a tent Okay, I'd like to know the rest of that story, but that's the patient, and he's a metabolic train wreck, and so he, Ted, you know, talk, gives him the talk and works him up and whatever, so he goes to a secondhand store. He buys a used cast iron stove. He has a butane stove that he cooks on. He goes to Safeway, which is our big chain store in this area. Yeah. He buys the cheapest 80-20 hamburger he can get, right? 80 80% lean, 20% fat. He gets the eggs, the cheapest eggs that they have. That's what he eats. And in, I'm going to say it's a year, but I think it was less. But in a year, he dumps like 70 pounds, something like that, of excess body fat, not weight. And he normalizes his metabolic markers. And he's spending six to seven dollars a day for food and fuel. So now talk to me about why somebody should be paying any more than that, right? I, I just, um, again, making it real for people, making it accessible is important because we have this global issue. And um, I think that the cost of obesity-related illness in just the United States is set at something like 1.7 some trillion dollars, which is like 9% of GDP. All of farm and ranch gate value in the United States is 1% of GDP. So this is huge. And there is an environmental impact to the healthcare industry. You know, that you start looking at this in, in, in a broader sense and you begin to see how we could make a huge impact in so people's lives. This is the impact that being sick, having me ex expanded medical uh, facilities, hospitals, extra ambulances, extra doctors, the, the impact on the, the environment. Is that what you're talking about? Well, in part. So if we're going to have an honest conversation about sustainability, we have to be concerned about ecological factors, true, but also economic and societal. If we're not looking at all three of those, we're, we're not having a true conversation about sustainability. So you, you have that financial burden. And part of that is direct cost, and part of that is lost wages and diminished output. Um, but at the same time, 
we know that these diseases lessen the quality of life for people. So how does that manifest itself in their home lives and in their communities? Um, we know that this is going to shorten their lives. So what effect does losing a parent prematurely have in the lives of their children? To say nothing about the epigenetic or what we say in livestock fetal imprinting that takes place, generational. Um, and then there is an economic uh, sorry, ecological impact. Um, one study estimates the greenhouse gas emissions from the healthcare industry at 10% in the United States. And the, the anthropogenic greenhouse gas emissions from all of agriculture in the United States is 9%. And from livestock industry is 4%. So less than half of the total for agriculture. And beef is somewhere around 2%. So those are those numbers. The farmers, um, it, one calculation said that if the average American type 2 diabetic could, reduce, could eliminate their medication use, they would reduce their carbon footprint 29% more than if they shifted from what was defined as a meat heavy to a vegan diet. Hmm. Hmm. If only there were some way for a type two diabetic to eliminate, what might that be? What could that possibly look like if there were only some way? I'm out of ideas, Pete. You got any? Yeah, I have a few. Um, <laughs> so, but, but how many people know, for example, in the United States, that the American Diabetes Association has now said that a you know, therapeutic carbohydrate reduction is a viable approach to treating type 2 diabetes? Um, so... Part of the is to, is to make sure the message gets out to people, all of these messages, because we really haven't been well served by a number of interests that have been at play for the last, you know, half century or so. And it's it's past time for us, um, you know, part of um, imagine. Imagine someone who has struggled with their weight, which essentially is every obese person, right? Um, very few people wake up obese and go, oh my God, how'd this happen? I mean, that doesn't, it's not the way that story runs. Um, so they try following advice, right? And then the way it has happened too frequently is that person has results that I would predict based on what I know. But when they go back to whoever gave them the advice, they go, oh, well, you must not be doing it right. Or you must be lying. 
or whatever the other, in other words, it's your fault. Yeah. Okay. So, so this is a version of the what's wrong with me question. And we now have an answer. Okay. Apparently you're someone that couldn't do well on the official answer, but there's another approach that you should feel comfortable trying and, and you're not going to harm your health by doing this. Yes. If you're on medication, you need to do it under doctor supervision. Right, right, right. I'm not that kind of doctor. So we're all clear. I'm not giving medical advice. All right, good. Okay. But find those physicians are now available. I don't care where you are. You can now find them. And we well, can tell you telemedicine as well now. Well, and in some, well, that's one way to call it a benefit. Um, but formally in the United States, as I understand it, it was very difficult for physicians to charge for telemedicine um, because of insurance and billing and all that kind of stuff. Um, but now that's changed with the new you know, reality, and we'll see how that transpires going forward. Um, and yeah, Verda Health is the example of one that's now got three-year data showing. Um, so these things are now possible. And then the bit that I can help with, in addition to introducing people to literature and books and people, is to deal with any of their concerns on the supply side, if you will. Yeah. And and then I desperately want, you know, my producers to meet these people that I've gotten learned so much from in the clinical side and the research side. Um, and then I want some smart people to start thinking about how can we multiply this. I think, um, in fact, I think that's Gary Taub's next book, The Case for Keto, um, which I guess now isn't coming out until the end of the year. But he interviewed a bunch of clinicians and, and researchers and basically asked one of the things he asked was, you know, how did you get on this? What, what was the pivotal moment for you? And um, I, I know I heard Dave Feldman at one presentation talk about the pivotal patient. Like I know, I know it's a drag and not everybody's equipped to argue with their physician, right? I, I get that. Um, and, and so people shouldn't feel like they have to. Um, I think it's a shame that that's where we are. But Dave's point was, if, you're, if you do go through that, if you feel comfortable doing that, you may be the patient that shifts your doctor or plays a part in your doctor's transformation, so that pivotal patient. So if we can multi and 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 um, what Taub's talked about was how do we multiply those experiences so more and more and more of those shifts can take place. Um, either the physician themselves realize that oh my God I'm the patient I've been doubting all these years, or they have a patient that comes in so transformed that it forces them then to, to think, rethink what they thought they knew. Fantastic. I, I have got a funny feeling that we could talk about the stuff until the cows come home. Oh, oh, oh. But um, 
Ruminati points awarded. <laughs> sure, you heard that one before. But I think before we wrap things up, Peter, because I, you know, it's getting pretty late where you are, respectful of your very busy schedule. Uh, what's a takeaway for the listener today that you'd like to share? Yeah, so briefly, um, when you improve your health, you are improving the world. If we could own that, and it's if if you find yourself having you know in this metabolic syndrome world, um, it's it's not your fault, right? It is your problem, but it's not your fault. And there are a number of ways to go about trying to reverse that it is reversible and there's lots of information now available and you should go get it because you're worth it um and if the path that you choose to follow is one where you're eating more animal source food or maybe exclusively animal source food maybe at the beginning you're trying to essentially go on what i've heard people call the ultimate elimination diet um you know just find out what you know uh, get yourself right um please don't listen to the same voices that you know sold you the diet that made you sick in the first place and, and as you spend time in this arena, you'll begin to see how all these interests are interrelated and rarely declared and completely without foundation in their arguments. So those two things for the takeaway. And, and then the other thing is just the importance of being part of a group. You know, find that support for what you're trying to achieve. Um, you know, I, I understand in our household, the way Nancy approached it was, she said, this is how I'd like to eat. What would you like to eat? Right. So very wise woman. Um, so that's and, and then finally, when I you know, it's like, OK, what I'm doing isn't working. It, let's let's go here. Um, so understand there's a dynamic in families that make it difficult, but there's ways to work through that. Um, and then uh, again, finding people that can share information, support what you're trying to, you know, they, they support your goals. Um, what is it they say? If it's, if it's not written down, it's not a goal, right? So, um, there's a, there's a couple things. Um, that, that uh, just some basic thoughts. Um, and I'm looking at the board because I never get it right when I try to repeat <laughs> it. Each, each person is sent into this world with a special message to deliver, with a special song to sing for others, with a special act of love to bestow. No one else can speak my message or sing my song or act, uh, offer my act of love. These are entrusted only to me. I don't know what that looks like for anybody else. I think I've got something of a lock on it for me. And, and so helping people get to that point. But as we go, 
Honesty without compassion is cruelty. And confrontation without a real solution is abuse. Uh, I love right? that. So um, there's, this is not by Mark Twain. People think it is, but apparently it wasn't. Two most important days of your life are the day you were born and the day you find out why. Is that Zig Ziglar? Um, I don't know. It might be, but I, I originally saw that um, a- attributed to Twain. And when I went and looked it up, I found, oh, nope, nope, somebody else. So it might be, it might be. I uh, don't want to deny him. I'm certainly not going to claim it. Um, so those sorts of ideas, there's a lot of people in our world today that don't understand they, they don't know the answer to that question, what's wrong with me? Um, many of us come from less than ideal backgrounds, but our history is not our destiny. Right? There, there, there are solutions, and we can find a way through those and then get to a better uh, future. And then this idea of we... If you, we can have one of two primary values, core values. We can be interested in maximizing human flourishing or minimizing human impact. Those are two big sort of philosophical approaches to the world and issues. The irony is if your focus is minimizing human impact, you will never get to maximizing human flourishing. But it's if, if we focus on doing what we can to help others, we will get to minimizing human impact. And so as we look around the world, there are really important things that we can work on that would make a difference. But let's make sure that we've done the work here. Because too often it's been my experience that people that are loudest about wanting to, you know, change the world are, are doing that out of a distracting themselves from doing the hard, humbling work of changing and improving themselves. Again, the irony is if we will each take that on, we will make the world a better place. But it requires that effort and that humbling. So I love maybe I love should, that mindset, Peter. I really do. Maybe we should set up a time for when we can talk about the difference between plant source and animal source nutrients. But that's that's for a later time. Well, we absolutely need a second interview because we haven't even scratched the surface of some of the stuff that I was hoping to talk about, but there will be more opportunities. This is a good wee, a great wee intro into someone that hasn't really even explored this. I've seen plenty of your lectures on YouTube. You're a prolific tweeter on at grass-based. You can check out Peter's phenomenal work on Twitter. And where else can we find you? Well, look look for me at YouTube by my name. Um, lots of my talks have been posted there. Um, you can also find me on Facebook, either 
by name or I have a page called Grass-Based Health. Um, there's also a group that I call Ruminati. It's a closed group and moderated by someone. So you can look for those. Um, and I'm also on Instagram at, at Grass-Based. Brilliant. And your last name is B-A-L-L-E-R-S-T-E-D-T. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Ballerstead. Ballerstead. Good on you. <laughs> no worries, mate. Well, yeah. I, this has been phenomenal. And I, I, from a selfish point of view, I always get so much out of this and I've enjoyed watching you online for a few years now. It's been an absolute thrill to have you on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, Dr. Peter Ballerstead. Thank you. It's Laban Ditchburn, and I really hope you're enjoying the podcast. The reason for this message was this. If you have your own podcast or your own YouTube channel, or you're seriously thinking about starting something up in order to get your message out into the world, I want to make something available to you. Go to podcastingheroes.com for your free five-day video training. Well, I will share with you five key tips and tricks that will allow you to reach out and connect with the best podcast guests available. And not only just bring them on, but to develop relationships with them that build into know, like, and trust that will eventuate in you being invited onto their platforms if you so desire. You'll be able to learn how to monetize even if you don't have a big audience. Go to podcastingheroes.com. It's P-O-D-C-A-S-T-I-N-G-H-E-R-O-E-S.com.